Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 5, and Book 4 of On the Nature of Things, where our boy Lucretius offers a description of the workings of the senses and an account of empirical epistemology. Regarding those two general subject areas, I'm going to spend most of my time, I think, on epistemology, as many of the accounts of the senses that Lucretius gives are actually factually wrong. They're wrong for good reasons. That is, he insists upon drawing no conclusions not supported by evidence and proposes a number of purely naturalistic explanations for how various senses work. Sometimes he's fairly close and sometimes he's radically wide of the mark, but he is consistently at least empirical. He's true to his own standard. And where he goes wrong, his mistake here is elsewhere is simply due to a lack of the ability to observe phenomena as closely as, for example, we now can. That is, knowing what we know now about how bodies work, the odds of anybody in Lucretius's time coming up with an accurate explanation of the senses were so low as to be effectively zero. What matters in his case is that he is true to his assertion that the best explanations for natural phenomena are to be found through observation of those phenomena without positing any unverifiable or unfalsifiable supernatural cause or agency. That said, I think we should look in detail at the epistemology itself, as this is the book in which he gives us the fullest account of how we actually go about knowing. And I think one useful way of going about this is to take a look at how he says we are deceived. After he presents an account of the various operations of the senses, he also, of necessity, has to present an account of illusion, how it seems that we might see one thing when in fact that's not what's there. That is, about the ways in which the brain deceives itself. And on that he has this to say. We encounter many other illusions of this ilk, amazing sights all striving, as it were, to cheat and bilk the credulity of the senses, but all for naught, since the lion's share deceive because of notions that our own minds bring to bear, when we think they see something that the senses did not view. For nothing is more difficult than to distinguish what is true from false interpretations which the mind applies on cue. That is, Lucretius distinguishes between raw sensory input, we might say, and the interpretation that our brain applies to that input. And in fact, he attributes this misinterpretation as being the most common source of illusion, of seeming to be deceived by our senses. Or in other words, while our senses are not 100% reliable, they're more reliable than our brains. And if we're going to be deceived where sensory perception is concerned, it is most likely going to be by ourselves. And the ways in which we're likely to deceive ourselves are bound up with the thoughts or images or categories of thought that we're already carrying around in our minds. That is, to a large degree, Lucretius points out correctly, we see what we are predisposed to see. Or in other words, We project our psyche out onto the world and then think that that is what we're actually seeing. And of course, the things that we project 
The things that we think we see can range from the humorous to the outright dangerous, can't they? Lucretius mentions our tendency to see patterns of animals, for example, in the clouds. Well, we've all done that. And this is something that our brains do. We're, we're cued to see particularly faces or we're predisposed to see patterns in things. There's actually quite a bit of research now on exactly that topic, the, the human tendency to project patterns onto random perceptions and then take the perception as if it were real. We hear voices in the wind, glimpse imaginary threats from the corners of our eyes, project our favorite religious icons onto clouds or windows or a piece of toast. The technical name for this tendency is patternicity, and I would encourage you all to look it up. But Lucretius goes on. As for the fellow who asserts that nothing can be known, he doesn't even know that fact, since he's the first to own that he knows nothing. I won't debate a person who, instead of keeping two feet on the ground, is standing on his head. Or, if I grant he knows that much, I have questions in store. For, since he's never put faith in the sensory world before, how does he even know what knowing is, or, furthermore, not knowing? What forms his notion of the false or of the true? What evidence has proved the difference between the two? Well, what is he up to here? For one, he is rejecting the notion that nothing can be known, and he's rejecting it for perfectly valid reasons. It violates the law of non-contradiction. To say that nothing can be known is a truth claim. That is, it is to say that you know that nothing can be known, and immediately it turns in upon itself. So Lucretius is not a relativist where knowledge is concerned. But what constitutes knowledge? This is a really important question here. Different schools of thought posit different understandings of knowledge. We need to get our mind around what Lucretius means by knowledge. And the key word here, of course, is evidence. He asserts, moreover, that without appeal to the sensory world, without appeal to the senses, rather, we can't even know what true and not true are. And this tracks actually pretty well, because, of course, we know through perception, we know through the senses, and any given statement can either correspond or not correspond with the evidence with which we're presented. In the absence of that basis of comparison, that concrete thing, that confirmable perception, there is nothing to which one can appeal when making a truth claim. But of course, this on the other hand, leaves knowledge as being something other than absolute certainty. Because of course, where there's an appeal to evidence, there's always the possibility that other evidence will emerge. So that mathematical precision of knowledge that we might want to have seems to be something that we can't have. He goes on, You'll find the concept of the true is formed and has its root in the senses, their testimony such that no one can refute. For there must be a higher court to which you can appeal, that on its own can disprove what is false and what is real. Besides, on what except the senses can you more rely? Shall reason, based on the senses' false witness testify, against those very senses out of which it's wholly sprung? For if the senses are untrue, all reasoning is wrong. 
Can the ear convict the eye? Or is touch able to bring suit against the ear? Can touch against the sense of taste dispute, or nostrils confound its argument? Or will the eye refute, no, I think not? Each sense has a function to perform, a separate jurisdiction. We discern what's soft or warm, or cold, therefore, by one particular sense, and we perceive the many hues of things and all the qualities that cleave closely unto color by another sense, as well. It takes the mouth to taste a flavor, but to smell a smell requires another sense, another still to pick up sounds. So one sense can't disprove that which another sense propounds, nor can these senses testify against themselves. They must be granted at all times an equal measure of our trust. Thus, what they say is true, at any given time, is true. And while this may sound like he's saying whatever you perceive to be real is real, he's not. Remember, he just got finished identifying the categories of thought we carry around in our own heads as being the things that more than any other trip us up and trick us into thinking we've seen things or heard things that we haven't actually seen or heard. That is, the information of the senses is, in this statement here, what, what the senses perceive to be true is true, prior to the interpretation of that information. He's simply referring to data here, raw data, and pointing out that there is no arguing against the data. There is no arguing against the evidence. He points out as well that we learn to reason through the senses, and this seems to be the case. And in fact, it would be difficult for the situation to be otherwise, probably impossible, because it's through the senses that we actually experience the world. And it's against the world that we measure our thoughts, our predictions, our projections. So without that basis, which can only be received through the senses, reasoning itself would become impossible. And it's the senses, therefore, to which we must be able to appeal in evaluating any truth claim. That is, if you want to say that X exists, great, point to X. And the minute you cut yourself free of that check on the excesses of both imagination and language, you open yourself up to all kinds of nonsense. Because words can be made to do virtually anything, can't they? And that we can say something in words, even if it's internally consistent structurally, as a, as a syllogism, for example, that we can say something in words doesn't ever make it true. It may make it logical. It may make it valid. But unless it's anchored to concrete reality, it is nothing but what I like to call pretty word pictures. But let's continue with the passage and see what Lucretius has to say about it. If reason can't unravel the mystery and gives no clue to why what had seemed square to us when viewed from near at hand looks rounded at a distance, if you cannot understand, it's better to offer erroneous explanations than let slip any aspect of the graspable out of your grip, and that way wreck the fundament of faith and so lay waste the whole foundation on which life and life's welfare are based. For not only would all reason fall apart and come to grief, but in an instant life itself, unless you hazard belief in the senses, and back away from the brink of sheer cliffs and avoid other places where life and limb are like to be destroyed, and walk the other way, I tell you, all the ranks of word on word mustered and armed against the senses 
are absurd. And that last line is one of the lines I love most in this entire poem. But as for that chunk of the passage as a whole, he brings up something really important here, and I think I want to focus on it. He suggests that even if we have merely a viable empirical explanation for something, that is better than proposing a supernatural explanation, because of course a super, supernatural explanation can't be verified by the evidence, pretty much definitionally. It might look and feel like knowledge because it gives us a sense that we know things, but really it's just a cover for our own ignorance. If there were evidence for it, it would be available to the senses and would therefore not be supernatural. So what he's insisting on here, and I love this, is that, well, there are a couple of things. One, you don't need to wait until you know everything before you can say anything. Two, knowledge is progressive you offer the best explanation that you can, and then simply be prepared to update it as more evidence comes in. But you never wave the white flag and say, oh, it's the supernatural. You simply keep checking. And this is why I'm particularly forgiving of his many, many, many mistakes, because he's the first to admit that he's working with incomplete data. And as I've said, he points out elsewhere that he knows many of his explanations are speculative. What matters here is not that they are absolutely correct, but what matters is that they're viable, that they make the best use they can of the available evidence. Well, where does this leave such things as the platonic theory of forms, the good, the beautiful, the true? or the Pythagorean mathematical solids, those perfect, ideal, abstracted, non-physical cubes and spheres and such. Well, to put it briefly, or in other words, pretty word pictures. Lucretius goes on, and this is the last part of this passage I want to explore with you just now. Lastly, in construction, if the carpenter's rule is bent, or if the square is warped on which we base our measurement, or if the level anywhere staggers off by even a jot, all of the structure must be built on crooked lines, the lot, ramshackle, tumble-down, wall leaning out or in, and all out of whack. Now part of the rickety shack is like to fall, and now part does collapse, and all because it was betrayed by faulty measurements when its foundation was being laid. Likewise, your reasoning concerning things is built askew if founded on sensations that are off from plumb and true. Or to cite a basic principle of engineering, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. If you begin with bad data, you're going to get bad results. And no amount of elegant reasoning or hand-waving will ever be enough to compensate for insufficient data. But onward. I think now I'd like to move on to Lucretius's critique of any sense of teleology in the particular form that we happen to have. That is, that we are what we are and the way we are because of some pre-existing purpose, or intent. Specifically, he seems to be taking aim at Aristotle's notion of the final cause. And while he doesn't ever name Aristotle, he does at times refer to the peripatetics, which is the school of philosophers who followed Aristotle's thought. 
this is one of the places where he most has that crowd in his sights. And the way in which he takes apart the teleological argument is largely by approaching it from the point of view of emergence, which we discussed in book two. Let's take a look at what he says. And I think I'll read this relevant passage at length and then take it apart a little bit and see how it works before moving on in the final segment of this little talk to discuss sex. So here's Lucretius from about line 823. A mistake I strongly urge you to avoid for all your worth, an error in this matter you should give the widest birth, namely, don't imagine that the bright lights of our eyes were purpose-made so we could look ahead, or that our thighs and calves were hinged together at the joints and set on feet so that we could walk with lengthy strides, or that forearms fit neat to brawny upper arms and are equipped on the right and left with helping hands solely that we will be dexterous and deft at undertaking all the things we need to do to live. This rationale and all the others like it people give jumble effect and cause and puts the cart before the horse for nothing is born just so that we can use it in due course. That which is born creates its own use. Before the light of eyes arose there was no such thing as a sense of sight. Before the tongue was fashioned there were no words to recite, but rather the genesis of the tongue by far predates the word, and ears came into being long before a noise was heard. In short, the organs and the limbs existed, I surmise, before there was any use for them. Thus they did not arise for the purpose of performing certain functions. No, instead, in combat, fighting hand to hand had already existed, and ripping of the limbs and fouling of the flesh with gore long before the launch of gleaming javelins in war, and human nature urged men to avoid coming to harm before a soldier learned to wield a shield on his left arm. And surely to succumb to sleep, to rest the weary head, antedates by far the cushioned mattress of a bed. Before there were cups to drink from, there existed thirst to slake. These inventions were devised for usefulness's sake, from experiences living we can easily suppose. But concerning all those other things, however, that arose before an inkling of their use, it's not the case at all. We see particularly that the limbs and senses fall into this category. This is why I say again, you can't believe they were created to fulfill a function. This is wonderful, and it's completely in line with the current understanding of how our bodies evolved. We don't have limbs so that we can walk, eyes so that we can see, or ears so that we can hear, but rather we hear because we have ears, see because we have eyes, and walk because we have limbs. The function or purpose, in other words, does not pre-exist the thing. Function does not precede form, it follows it. And in a world governed by natural laws, this of course is the only possibility, isn't it? In the absence of external guidance, nothing can be guided. In the absence of an intender, there can't be an intent. That is, in a cosmos that consists solely of atoms and void, all function needs to be emergent. It needs to arise from the metaphoric below, because there is no metaphoric above. A metaphoric above would require intelligence, and intelligence arises naturally, 
and as far as Lucretius is concerned, it arises with us. And yet he admits, as many have admitted since, including Darwin, that we do seem to bear the appearance of design. And that appearance of design is something that we need to explain, isn't it? Because, of course, teleological arguments are also sometimes referred to as arguments from design or intelligent design. And it's exactly between the appearance of design and the actuality of design that we need to distinguish. Lucretius points out, for example, that violence existed before weapons, desires for self-defense or self-preservation existed before shields, and thirst existed before cups. He's pointing out here a flaw in the reasoning of the teleological arguments generally. And that is, they make a category error if they draw on the analogy of human-made things in order to put forward the argument that humans are made things. Especially when we consider our various capacities, including our mental capacities, seem to be, as already discussed and as, as Lucretius has already gone into some detail to show, emergent phenomena arising from a complex system with no need for a supernatural agent to account for them being the way they are. Or to put it more briefly, we are what atoms do. But if you'd like a sort of semi-concrete example of how a function might arise from a form, I think I'd like to try maybe not quite an experiment, because I think there are rules against me experimenting on you, but at least a demonstration. So here's what I'd like you to do. If you're sitting at a desk... Put your elbows on the desk and fold your hands in front of you so that your fingers are interlaced through each other and you can rest your jaw on the backs of your hands. Then, rest your jaw on the backs of your hands, letting your hands absorb the weight of your head. Once you're in that position, I would simply like you to hum, a nice, long, deep hum. I'll do it with you. Hmm... And as you do that, what I'd like you to do is pay attention to the physical sensations, particularly the physical sensations in your jaw and in your ears. So try that again with those things in mind. Hmm. Sorry, I'm a little out of tune. Now, why did I just ask you to do this? You are probably wondering. And the reason is that I want to talk to you about the evolution of the mammalian ear. And just to be clear, this is not a digression. Lucretius actually gets into evolution in some detail in Book 5. I'm just foreshadowing a bit because I think that part of the argument is relevant to our demonstration here, where the functions of our various organs are concerned. So here's the rationale. Probably, as you were humming, you felt a bit of a tickling sensation in your ear, maybe even in your jaw as well, but certainly in your ear. That is, the sound vibrations were carried up your jawbone to your ear. Now, why does this matter? It matters because the mammalian ear is different from the reptilian ear from which it evolved. Similarly, the reptilian jaw and the mammalian jaw are also not the same. But the differences between the jaw and the differences between the ear are quite closely related. Here's how. The reptilian middle ear has one bone. The mammalian middle ear has three. 
the bone both have in common is called the stapes. It's the innermost of the bones in the mammalian middle ear. And the two that are unique to mammals are the malleus and the incus. Here's the fun part. The malleus and the incus evolved from bones in the reptilian jaw. And that fossil history is very well attested. Not only is the fossil history well attested, but the progression was actually first identified in the 19th century in studies of embryology, that is, in the mammalian embryo as it goes through development. The malleus and the incus begin looking something like jaw bones, and then they become ear bones as development progresses. But why did I make you hum into your hands? Well, you see, it's like this. At the time that our ear bones were in the process of changing from the reptilian form to their mammalian form, our ancestors were teeny tiny little things living quite close to the ground, pretty much on the ground, very often underground because they had to avoid much larger reptiles that would very happily eat them. What this means is they would have spent a lot of time with their jaws resting on the ground just as you spent time with your jaws resting on your hands. And as you can now tell from your own experience, vibrations picked up by the jaw from the surface it's resting on carry into the ear and produce quite specific sensations. Now, imagine you're hiding from predators. Those predators are bigger than you and their feet create vibrations in the ground as they approach. Your jaw then becomes a useful tool for detecting whether or not predators happen to be approaching you. But not all conductors of sound are the same. Smaller, in this case, is better. So there would be a survival advantage for those reptiles, those pre-mammalian reptiles, whose two upper bones in their lower jaw tended to be a little smaller and therefore could vibrate a little more finely or a with a little more detail than those whose upper two jaw bones were more robust. This seems to be at least one viable explanation as to how the mammalian ear and jaw evolved from the reptilian ear and jaw. Of course, we don't know if this is absolutely the case, but it makes sense. It's consistent with the evidence. And once the jawbones had gotten small enough and delicate enough, it would then be possible for them to pick up vibrations from the air as the bone in the reptilian ear already did. What this means actually, by the way, is that mammalian hearing is more precise than reptilian hearing. We hear better than reptiles do, and incidentally also better than birds. But to return to the function question, our hearing, as it is right now, actually emerged from a previous function in what is now our hearing apparatus, that is, detecting vibrations in the ground. There's no teleology involved, but there is a change of function, and that change is dictated by the organism's relationship to the environment, of course, as you would expect. Now, though, for the last part of our talk, I think it's time to skip to the end of Book 4, which actually isn't that far away from where we are now. And on the topic of the senses, talk a bit about sex. For one thing, he gives a completely naturalistic account of wet dreams around line 1030, 
rather than attributing them to spiritual visitations in the night, for example, a succubus or an incubus or that kind of thing. And this is refreshing because, of course, there is no sense of moral pollution in the explanation that he gives, whereas other supernatural explanations of this particular phenomenon... do tend to be morally tinged, and thus, I would say, probably unhealthy to the human psyche. But as long as we're on the topic of sex and morality, Lucretius also does not insist on a strict binary gender distinction. He says, for example, this is a line 1052 and forward, therefore, if someone's injured by the point of Venus's dart, whether a boy with girlish limbs has launched it at his heart, or a woman shooting the arrows of love from her entire frame, he seeks the source and longs to mingle with it all the same, to cast his fluid into another body, appetite wordlessly anticipating pleasure and delight. This is what Venus is. All right, there's a lot going on there. For one, not much in the way of gender hang-ups, which is refreshing. The pagan Romans were, of course, very open about sex. And for another, he's getting back to Venus, and he's saying quite explicitly, Venus is the sexual urge, period. So, that wonderful goddess who receives all of his praise at the very beginning of the poem, this is what he's talking about, being horny. And, as long as we're on the topic of being horny, he does seem to make an argument on the one hand for free love, and on the other for sublimation. For instance, it's best to flee away from images and to steer clear from the fodder that love feeds upon. It's better to direct your attention somewhere else and spend the fluids that collect on anybody rather than retain them and remain fixed ever on one love, laying up stores of certain pain, feeding the sore that will only make it fester and grow strong, for madness and misery grow graver as time goes along, unless you reopen the first wound with new cuts while it's still fresh, and with the Venuses of easy virtue cure the flesh, or turn your mind to something else, to some other pursuit. And I think I'd like to pause on this just a little bit, because pleasure, of course, for Lucretius is a good. Pleasure is the thing we seek, pain is the thing we seek to avoid. There's no pleasure more intense than sex. And I think what he's getting at here, and in much of the several lines that follow, is the danger of obsession, the danger of becoming obsessively attached to a single source of pleasure, and thus throwing both your perceptions and your reason out of whack. That is, love fucks you up. It just does. And it would be irresponsible of him not to take that into account. Any thinker looking to address what we can loosely call the human condition has to, at some point, confront sex and the relationships that revolve around it. And as for his suggestion that you just find something else to do, this, I think, though he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, addresses the redirected erotic energy that goes into so much else of human culture. For example, many of our arts, many of our drives to succeed, many of our urges to perform. For Lucretius, this all seems to be other ways of expressing Venus. So in that sense, at least, he's kind of got a 
2,000-year jump on Sigmund Freud. And while, of course, he does address sex as reproduction and actually floats a pretty good account of heredity, because he's not bound up in teleology, he can avoid falling into some single-minded notion that sex is for reproduction between a man and a woman who are married and simply examine it as one facet of human behavior and a very important facet of human behavior and one for which there is no one-size-fits-all approach. Different people are going to find different things pleasurable and different things unpleasant. Also, towards the end, I actually think he's kind of funny, while at the same time, after whatever rhetorical excesses he chooses to indulge in, wrapping up the book in a way that is, I think, genuinely humane. Here's how he concludes. This is Lucretius's Guide to Good Sex. The pleasurable deed itself will also have a vital say. It's important how you do it. People generally believe that wives more readily in the manner of wild beasts conceive, for it is in this position that the seed can occupy the right place, with a lowered breast and with the loins raised high, wanton wigglings of no use for wives, no, not one bit. For a woman prevents pregnancy in this way, resisting it, when she grinds her buttocks against a man's member as it thrusts, gyrating her whole body, turning to jelly with her lust. By doing this, she turns the furrow away from the straight and true path of the plowshare, and the seed falls by the wayside too. Whores thus have their own reasons for wriggling, so that they can spend less time pregnant and to make it better for the man. Clearly, though, our wives can have no use for such an art, which is a nice backhanded way, I think, of him saying that married sex is boring, but onward. Nor is the power of the god to blame, nor Venus's dart, when from time to time a plain girl steals somebody's heart. Sometimes it is the woman herself who has achieved this feat. By winning ways and keeping her dress and person clean and neat, she makes it easy to learn to live with her, and yet above all this, it is familiarity that leads to love. For anything that's hammered by a blow day by day, however softly struck, at length is conquered and gives way. Haven't you seen how drops of falling water on their own have the power over time to wear their way through stone? And I think I'd like to just wrap up with that last passage there, the notion of familiarity, of after all of his discussion of wild sex and he gets in some biting things and it's all really interesting, but he brings it around in the end to simply getting to know someone. And that is actually where love comes from. And, and here, I think he's distinguishing between simply being aroused and experiencing the emotion of love. And what he also comes around to after describing the various excesses to which the rich might go to attain the object of their desire, spending all of their money and exhausting all of their resources, that simple familiarity with which he concludes is universally accessible. And yet at the same time, even that most troublesome of emotions, the thing that probably we have our hardest time wrapping our minds around in terms of emotional experience, this is still real in Lucretius's material cosmos. He accounts for it by a combination of attraction and familiarity, and he associates it with other natural phenomena. This may not be to many 
a satisfying way of understanding something that we like to imbue with a great deal of mystery. But the least one can say about his claims here is that he is an astute observer of human behavior. And I think that's all I really need to say about this one. So we'll pick it up next time with Book 5, where Lucretius gets into such questions as evolution, politics, and the relationship between human nature and technology. For now, thank you as always for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you're finding this series useful and interesting. Of course, if you'd like to reach me, I'm at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, Eclectic Humanist on Facebook, and at EC Humanist on Twitter. I might also ask, as much as I don't really enjoy shameless self-promotion, that if you're enjoying this, and if you think someone else might find it worthwhile, please do share it. And if you're listening to it on my YouTube channel, please hit the like button and maybe even subscribe. This makes a big difference in terms of how many people I can actually reach. And if I can just kind of share my long-term plans here and make a bit of a confession, these episodes take a long time to make. It's about 10 or 12 hours of work for one episode. And I'm giving myself until the end of the summer to get my listener numbers up to the point where it's worthwhile putting in that kind of time. So if you would like to continue getting these episodes, honestly, help me out. I'd really appreciate it. Hit the share button, because I would very much like to be able to continue making them. I wouldn't do this if I didn't think there was something worthwhile in making these. I'm simply hoping that other people will eventually find that there's something worthwhile in them too. But as I said, thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. And until next time, be kind to each other. Mm-hmm.